The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. All right. Well, hey, it's good to be back on a Wednesday night, you know, after a little hiatus. Glad you're here with us. Hey, let's get to it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 as we continue through our study. Seems like we've been here for a long time because we have. Um, uh, the last three or four weeks, we've been kind of hovering as Christmas, New Year, all that stuff's been going on. Uh, but uh, we can get rolling again. Um, because there's been a little break, just, just a reminder of a few key elements of Ecclesiastes. Uh, first of all, most of this book, Solomon is apart from God. Solomon is not walking with the Lord, and he's describing what that's like. <laughs> you know, he's basically saying, um, apart from God, everything's a waste of time. And we're not really going to come to the, the main lesson of the story until the very last part of the book. Um, we're going to have little hints of truth. Um, and, and even in chapter 3, we're going to see a few kind of positives, tiny baby steps in the right direction. But it, it's, it's, the problem is you're, you're sensing that Solomon is wrestling with truth. Um, and why he even exists, and what's it all about, and he's wrestling, and, and there's moments where he starts to nudge into truth and, and stuff that's actually right, but then he falls off the cliff again into, well, I'm going to call it fatalism. Fatalism. That's kind of a, a doctrine, really, of, of many, even today. And um, if you're a fatalist, um, by definition, in fact, uh, Webster's defines, uh, defines fatalism as this, a doctrine uh, where events are, um, you know, pretty much fixed and advanced uh, so that uh, human, uh, human beings are unable and powerless to change them. We can't change the events. It's already fixed. Everything's already predetermined, pre-established. And so the fatalist says, so why even try? Now, by the way, one of the things, you know, and, and this, is, this always interests me because um, I've noticed everybody tends to think the most negative thing. Um, our Calvinists in the congregation think I'm an Arminianist. Our Arminianists in our congregation think I'm a Calvinist. And it's because I'm a Calvinianist. Um, and what is, what is that? Well, um, I'm one of those guys, and, and by the way, I frustrate the daylights out of some of you guys that are, that are the people that have to have it one way or the other. It's either this or that. And I'm one who believes God's just bigger than this. You know, the Calvinist, the Arminianist, it reminds me of when Moses was in the wilderness. And Moses said, okay, Lord, you said you're going to give us meat. So what are we going to do? Are we going to get fish from the sea or are we going to kill some of our flocks and our herds? Which one? Fish from the sea, flocks and herds. Which one? And the Lord said? He said, no. <laughs> Which one? No. Fish or? or nope. Get this. I'm going to cause birds to fall out of the sky, and you just reach down and pick them up and put them in a basket. Um, try that one on. Uh, that Moses would have never had that idea cross his mind. Fish from the sea. Lord, should we have fish from the sea? Or should we have flocks and herds? Or will you just have birds flying, and they just kind of die and go, and land on our plate, ready to eat? Like, who would have thought? And that's the thing. Uh, we create these false dilemmas, and it's easy to do with God. I'll tell you why. Because God is amazing. He can do whatever he wants. Now, here's where, you know, the Calvinist Arminius thing. I'm a total believer in God's sovereignty, as we all should be. God is sovereign. He knows all things. He can do all things. There's nothing limited about God. And I believe in the foreknowledge of God and the predestination and all that stuff that we teach as we go through the Bible. But one of the dangers of just landing solely on the sovereignty of God is if you're not careful and, you, and you're not teaching the whole Bible, you can almost get into this mindset where, well, then it's all predetermined. God's going to work it out anyway. Remember how I was talking about Bible prophecy uh, just last week about the, there's the pre-trib, post-trib, and then there's the pan-trib people. It's all going to pan out, whatever. That's the problem that I'm talking about. We're like, yeah, whatever, God's going to do what he's going to do. So forget reading Bible prophecy. And by doing that, they're doing what God told us not to do not to forget Bible prophecy, but actually study it. One-fourth of the Bible deals with Bible prophecy. We should study it, be into it, 
And, and then Jesus told us over and over again, watch, be ready. Don't be the wicked servant saying, ah, oh, whatever the Lord delays is coming. Be the faithful servant that's watching and ready for the Lord's return. Um, that's the problem when we start just landing solely on God's sovereignty. By the way, this will freak some of you out. I believe we have some of our own little sovereignty ourselves. What do you mean, Brett? Well, God gave you a certain sovereignty, and I, I can't explain it. But isn't it interesting that the same Bible that teaches God's sovereignty, which I 100% believe, predetermination of God, foreknowledge, divine election, 100% believe all that, at the same time, there's this weird element where God says, you choose. Where does it say that? Well, remember, it says, if anyone confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised them up for them, they'll be saved. So that means you have a choice to make. Are you going to be one of those people or not? Well, Brett, I just believe God predetermined it, so whatever. See, the problem with that is why would the Bible even tell us to do anything if God already predetermined everything and there's nothing in it for us to do? Why do we pray? Why do we spend time doing anything? See, that's the problem. If you're not careful, you can get into sort of this doctrine of fatalism that it's all up to God anyway and it's all predetermined so we can't do anything. Give up, let go. God's going to work it out however it's going to work out. That's fatalism. And that's kind of where Solomon finds himself. And by the way, even though he was disconnected from God, the the hardest part of poor Solomon is he still believes in God. He's not believing God. He's believing in God. Like Satan believes in God, but he's not believing God. There's a difference. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is the example of the guy who's disconnected from God. And, but he also gets the sense that it's all going to come out and pan out how God wants it to, which we know that's true. But if that's all you know, that God's going to work it out however he wants it, we have no influence, no determination of what we do with ourselves and our time, then you become a fatalist. And then life gets pretty depressing. That's where Solomon's at. That's what this book is really all about. Vanity, vanity, everything's vanity, a waste of time. Soap bubbles, as we've talked about in previous studies. And so, so that's where poor Solomon's at. And the phrases that you got to remember is, um, you know, the idea of uh, vanity and also the idea of everything that's under the sun. When, you, when Solomon says, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, 30 plus times in this book, he's talking about secular. Remember, the, the word is secula in the original language, um, which is where we get our word secular, which means apart from God. Um, and, and that's the thing. Anything that's under the sun, the, the imagery there is, you, you know, they, they can see the sun, they can see the earth, they can see everything around that. So whatever you can see and know, then that's what we're going to believe, everything that's under the sun. He starts off chapter 3, stretching his boundary from just under the sun, and he's starting to stretch it into a good direction. And, and by the way, I think this was why, you know, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 can cause great confusion to people. Is it a good chapter or a bad chapter? Is Solomon saying good things or is he saying bad things? And you'll find um, through the centuries debate, um, and you'll see what I mean as we get into this. Now, he's going to go and step out of his little under the sun and look at verse 1 of chapter 3. There it says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Ooh, hey, Solomon, way to go. He's broadening his mind to under the heaven. Uh, that's a good thing because under the sun is secular, but under heaven is starting to speak more in a bigger scheme. And, oh man, Lord, give us that mentality. Give us the worldview under the heavens, not just under the sun. I hope you can um, be that way. It, it, it's so important for you and I to have that worldview that is, you know, that which is um, eternal, the bigger picture in mind. Um, the grand scheme of things. So he, he, he is dabbling into this idea of under the heaven. And he, he, he uses two terms here, a season, verse 1, and a time. Season and time. It's, it's, it's what he's talking about. There's a season and a time for everything. And so let's take a look. In verse 2, he says there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. Now, some of you 60s people are all in tears now. (laughs) This is so wonderful. Because of the birds. Remember the birds? They did this song. Um, That song is for the birds. Uh, I'm just going to tell you. 
Um, the guy that, that penned this song, I forget the name of the guy in the birds. Don't tell me you 60s people. I don't care. Um, <laughs> the 60s people are like, oh, I know who that is. Now, this, the poor guy lost his marbles. Went to an insane asylum not long after this, and largely due to his alcoholism, but also um, because um, it's almost like he was, he, you know, they were singing that song with smiles on their faces and their Rickenbacker 12-string guitars, and it's like, you know, turn, turn, there's a season, turn. And everybody's all, you know, smoking weed and having a great time listening to that song. The problem is, is that an anthem of truth and great joy, or is it an anthem of total despair? I have a theory that the birds, when they were writing that song, they knew what this is about. That con- contextually, in this chapter, uh, you might say that this may not be so good. What do you mean, Brett? This is the Bible. Well, see, that's what I wanted to make sure you understand. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the point is that Solomon's lost in this time where he's writing all this stuff. And he's going to even say that at the end of the book. Um, so what's the deal? And he's going to tell us what the deal is. And, and, and we're going to see this. And that's why there's confusion in this chapter. So, so far, you might say, well, Brett, this is sort of true. There is a time to be born and a time to die. That's true. Um, and you say, this is truth. But, but let's keep reading. Um, he says, you know, uh, verse 3, there's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, if you're not a Baptist. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And here's where he nails it down, verse 9. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherewith he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. You see, he's saying, what's the point? There's a time to heal, time to kill. There's a time to plant, time to plug out. He's saying, what's the point? There's a time for this and that. And he's kind of, see, we, we all, as Christians who love God, these statements are, in fact, true, aren't they? There is a time for everything. And, and here's where it even gets more confusing. So, ver, you know, verse uh, 9 and 10, you kind of realize, oh, yeah, Solomon's still in his under-the-sun kind of mentality. You know, in fact, look at verse 9 where he says, what profit hath he that works? In where any labors, he's he's sort of echoing. Do you remember um, uh, that we were reading that in chapter one, uh, verse three? What profit hath a man of all his labor which he has taken under the sun? In other words, why even work at stuff? It's a big waste of time. Solomon saying. Now, as Jesus followers, Christian people, we know that our labor is legit to do the work that we're called to do. Bible has a lot to say about the work of our labors, the work of our hands. The Bible even calls the man that's not willing to work, he's worse than an infidel if he doesn't provide for his own home. He, Paul told young Timothy that. So the idea of laboring, and the Bible also tells us in the New Testament, you know, we're talk, talks about how if a man doesn't work, what? He doesn't eat. Um, so there's, there's value in working. And, uh, but Solomon kind of concludes this, this sort of oratory of there's a time to do this and a time to do that. The positive, the negative, the A, the B. But then he says it's all a big waste of time. That's his point. Now you say, but Brett, it's the next verse that's so awesome and beautiful. Uh, verse 11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Um, it's funny because the word beautiful there, in the King James it's beautiful, and I think it's the New International Version that says beautiful. Which one? One says, um, is it the NA? Who's got the NSB? Anybody? Appropriate. <laughs> he makes all things appropriate. By the way, the New, the New American Standard Bible uh, is kind of funny because, um, because it reads a little dry. <laughs> <laughs> the translation. It's um, like instead of verily, verily, I say unto thee, it's truly, truly, I say to you. It's like very, you know, eh, eh, eh. And, um, and that's the NASB. However, the New American Standard Bible, some of the linguistic scholars say that's the best translation of all. Um, so it's a really interesting thing. 
But which one is it, inappropriate or beautiful? Um, Well, it is the Hebrew word that's kind of interesting here. It can kind of be one or the other, but it leans toward just the appropriateness, which is kind of interesting. It's not as it's not as fun. Uh, I like the King James because it's more fun. Uh, <laughs> he makes all things beautiful in his time. And we sing songs in his time. Remember that in the 80s or whenever that was? He makes all things beautiful in his time. And we, we, uh, we all teary-eyed about that. But as you read this along, Solomon's not coming to this wonderful conclusion. I'll show you what I mean. He, hath, he and I do believe he's talking about God because he's talking about God in verse 10. He says, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men. You know, the troubles that God has given man. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, to be exercised in it. He, God, hath made all things to be appropriate in his time or beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world. Um, by the way, the word world, the Hebrew word there is ages or, the eter- or eternity. It's not just the world, but it has to do with the scope of time and space. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. See, the last part of that verse, he's saying he makes all things appropriate in his time, but who can figure it out? That's what he's saying. Who can figure it out? Nobody can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. And then he goes on in his sort of despair. Uh, Verse 12, I know that there is no good in them for, uh, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. He's, he's acknowledging that there is some goodness and some things that you can enjoy from God, but he's about to fall off the cliff. See, this is, this is what I'm going to show you is, is you're going, oh, Solomon, you're so close. Now, let me tell you why this is hard for some people to believe or understand what I'm talking about. Because as Christians, Solomon's reaching to truth, true things. It is true that God makes all things beautiful and, and even beyond beautiful in his time. And so that's why we, that, that little sentence resonates with us. Um, and, and by the way, you can prove that elsewhere in the Bible, that God makes all things beautiful in his time. That's why it resonates. Contextually in this book, however, Solomon still doesn't get it. He's still saying, yeah, but God makes all things appropriate in his time, but we still can't figure it out. And so just enjoy some food which I agree with that. That's probably the most true thing he said in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Um, enjoy your food, uh, you know, and, and the good in your life, you know, and, and eat and drink and enjoy the good of all your labor. But it's a gift of God. But, but see, that's such a limited view about what God is actually doing. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. See, Solomon's, he's talking about that which is under the sun. He's at least acknowledging that the gifts of food and drink are from God and you should enjoy it. But do you see that he's sort of blinded in his separation from God? Remember, disconnected from God means discontentment with life. That's what we've been, that's kind of a theme, if you would, uh, of, of, of this study that we've been here in Ecclesiastes. Disconnected from God uh, makes you discontented with life. And that's really the problem. He's, he's just l- reaching for something to be happy about. He's, well, from food and drink and God makes all that stuff. Who can figure it out? And then he starts to go back into some of the other rhetoric. Verse 14. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put into it, nor anything can be taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Again, you and I can see truth in verse 14, but Solomon's worldview is that of a fatalist. If you look at this verse in the eyes of a fatalist, a doctrine that, you know, um, basically says that events are fixed in advance, that human beings are powerless to change them. That's what he's, that's what he's all about. And we're going to see that even at the end of this chapter. If you look at it from his perspective saying verse 14, you go, man, Solomon, you don't understand. But if you look at it from our perspective, we know that whatever God does, it's going to be forever. He is eternal. He's the only wise God. We have other scriptures that tell us this truth, um, but um, you can't add to what God did. You can't take away from what God does, and we should fear before God. But in Solomon's view, it's, it's a negative fear, and that's kind of where he lands, just be afraid. 
in you and my, our, our view of this, we, we, I'm reminded of Romans 8. You know, every answer to Solomon's trouble is found in the New Testament, by the way, and specifically in Christ Jesus. Somebody should write a book or a paper and just answer all of Solomon's troubles and show how Jesus is the answer to every single one of them. That'd be a fun study right there. Just, it'd be, it'd be a, an awesome book because Solomon's just moaning and complaining about everything. But everything that he's talking about, Jesus is the answer. Let me give you an example of that. So he's saying, God's going to work it all out. He's doing stuff and who can figure it out? And you can't change what God's doing. So everybody fear him. As a fatalist, as an under the sun guy, that's a bummer. As an under the sun guy or gal, S-O-N, Jesus, you've got Romans 8, 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers or things are present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, you can't change God because he loves you so much and no, nobody's going to change. See, that's the part Solomon's missing. The unchanging, wise God. Yes, we fear him, reverence, respect, honor, but we also love him because he loves us. And his unchanging demeanor is not something to be feared or afraid of if you know him, if you're saved by him, you see. So Solomon, this is an interesting thing to me because I have found that there are people like Solomon, even in modern times, that struggle exactly the way he does. That's why I'm sort of harping on this point is this isn't just a guy 3,000 years ago who's really bummed out because he doesn't understand God. This worldview of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is alive and well today. And, and usually it sort of shows itself. And you will talk pe- to people who sort of have this negative view of God. Oh, they sort of believe in God. Yeah, and they sort of understand the Bible's true. And they, they kind of have the general, you know, truths but they're afraid of him and they're sure that God's mad at them and that that his grace isn't sufficient for them, that somehow God can't really forgive them for what they've done. There's people that really struggle with this stuff. And it tends to be more of this fatalist kind of mentality that Solomon has. But I'll tell you, the answer is quite simple. It's, It's connect yourself to Jesus Christ. Know Jesus. Know what Jesus was all about. Jesus is the answer for all those things. Um, I was talking to a, a person on Sunday who came and said, I just don't think the Lord can forgive me of, of all my sins. I, I, I know that, you know, the Lord forgives sin, and, but, but I have crossed lines. And like this person was, was really distraught. And I had to explain, you know, when Jesus had the nails in his hands and the nail in his feet and, and the spear in his side and the crown of thorns, that brutal picture of the cross, you and I, we have to know. It was enough. The cross was enough to, to do the work. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, it's all finished. That, that man, sin and death is done. And anyone, even to the uttermost, I love that word. Um, one, was it Billy Sunday? I think it was one of those guys from the old revivals that he uh, changed that verse, the Lord saves even to the guttermost. Because a lot of people from his congregation came from the gutter in the town. And he said, that's where the Lord goes. He saves even to the guttermost. And, and that's really true. That's what the Lord does. And, um, and see, Solomon somehow in his older age and after living apart from God, disconnected with God, he's really bummed out. He's saying, man, fear God. Um, enjoy whatever you can, but it's not so good. And he's going to get even worse. But then he says something that's very mysterious. Verse 15. This is chapter 3, Ecclesiastes 3.15. He says, That which hath been is now. And that which is to be hath already been. And God requires that which is past. Hmm. In other words, God can call back the the, the past is the idea there. Um, so you, you say, Brett, that's confusing. He, it, it seems like we're bending time in that verse. And this is an interesting thing. Now, Solomon, it's funny how many things he's saying in this book that are really true, but just not with the full perspective of things. That's the problem. He lacks an understanding of God's love and, and plan and purpose. But he's still this guy who was given uh, miraculous levels of wisdom. And so he says this mysterious thing 
that has caused scholars and, and, and uh, scientists even to sort of debate about what is time. And even, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, it's kind of dabbling in this kind of stuff because he, he's basically, like when you think about it, that which hath been is actually now. Things that are already passed is happening right now. That which is to be, yet to have happened, it's already happened. And God require, can go back to the past and do whatever he wants. So that's, that, that's kind of the idea. And then you go to Peter, when, when, you know, Peter wrote his epistles, he made that radical statement, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years with the Lord is as a day. It seems that God exists outside of time, and I wonder if perhaps Solomon is talking about that issue. Now, it's, it's actually, there's actually a name theologians ascribe to this, it's called the eternal now where some would say that God exists outside of time. And by the way, that doesn't seem like much of a stretch to me to think that that's true. Is God limited to time? Question, why are we limited to time? Well, we're, we're you know, interesting in, in our limitations of dimensions. And man, when you start talking to some of these brainiac scientists, you know, they used to think there were three dimensions. Then they figured out, oh, there's more than that. There's four. And uh, Einstein talked about 12 or 14. And, and now there's all these other, I mean, dimensions, like we, is, is, do we even really know? And, and the, the idea is that perhaps because we are on this earth and we are going around the sun that dictates days and years and months, that's time as, as we know it, man. Linear time, day after day as we do our thing. But what's interesting, science has shown that when you go the speed of light, you actually can actually, in a sense, make time stop. Going the speed of light makes time stop. Now, there's all kinds of weirdness to that. Uh, they're finding now that the speed of light is actually a variable speed. We're not even sure that it's constant and it's, maybe it's changed over, you know, long periods of time and stuff like that. But, but uh, the speed of light, and, and here's God saying, I am light. God is light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then, and then there's mysterious things. So Jesus born in, a, in a, you know, in, a, in, a, in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. Um, but at the same time, Colossians says that Jesus was there at creation, at the creation of the world. Um, and, and, you know, um, I love the book of Revelation. God declares, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Speaking of time, eternal is the idea. He always was, always has been. That's the idea. But then Jesus is also called the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, show them the, the end of the book of Revelation, that, that say, those that say that Jesus is not God. Um, there's only one Alpha and Omega. There, there can't be two beginnings and endings, A, A's and Z's, in that sense that's being talked about. And here's God. He declares himself, I am the Alpha and Omega. And then, and then in the book of Revelation also, G, Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I always like to show my Mormon friends, the Jehovah's Witness friends, those scriptures because they can't explain that. You can't answer, how can Jesus call himself the Alpha and the Omega? Jesus is God who exists outside of time and space. When God became a man, you might say, God stepped into our linear time. Now, this is an interesting thing uh, because when people say, well, if Jesus is God, then how come he talked to God the Father in heaven? Um, what's the deal with that? And, and if Jesus is God, why did he talk about after he leaves, then he's going to send his Holy Spirit? We'll talk about that in a second the comforter. How is that possible that, you know, if God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it's the tr Holy Trinity, how does that all work out? The answer, if you, if you allow your mind to go there, it's kind of easy. It's outside of time and space. Um, I think it was Michael who was talking to me years ago. We were talking about this, and he, he had a great analogy that was uh, interesting where um, it'd be like if, if we invented a time capsule, and we jumped into this little time-space machine, a lotus, and put some banana peels in it and stuff, and said, you know, to infinity and beyond. So, pure, off we fly into time, and you were able to go back to when you were in kindergarten. And there the lotus lands on your play playground as a kindergartner, and you see your five-year-old self out there playing ball, just like Back to the Future. And, and, and you walk out there, and you, you walk up to yourself, and the little kid looks up to you, ah! Oh, no, it doesn't do that. Um, the little kid looks up at you, and, and, and what would you tell yourself? Um, what would you say? Hey, listen, 
when, you're, when you turn seven, don't steal the cookies from the cookie jar. Uh, when you turn eight, don't, don't start, uh, you know, uh, pulling your sister's hair. Hey, and when you turn 20, don't date that girl. Run for your life, you know, or whatever. Like, like what would you tell yourself? Try to help the uh, problems that you uh, incurred in life. Um, you'd be able to sort of talk to yourself because you went outside of time and space and you went into a section um, and, and you were able to sort of go back. That's what the Bible says. God can go back into the past, back to the future. That's, that's what this word is kind of telling us. And, it, it, in, and we think so linearly, but actually God exists outside of that time space, that timeline. It, it's kind of like, you know, if, if we uh, went to the Rose Parade and you went down and cordoned off your section for your family, put tape on the sidewalk. I don't think you can do that anymore now. But you set your chairs down and there you go. And pretty soon the floats start coming. And there goes the Wilsonville High School band. Dun, 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 dun. Like there's the Wilson. There they go. And off they go. That's linear. They're, they're, things are coming and going. And you're watching them go by. And you see the parade. And then you see the Athey Creek, uh, you know, the big Athey Creek um, huge balloon with Pastor Brett flying through the city of... <laughs> There's an image for you. Um, <laughs> and like, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and, and, and then you, it just keeps going. And you kind of go, oh, man, this is, this is, this is great. But, but what would happen if the, the K News helicopter landed right in front of you there on the street and said, hop in. And you get off your little chair and you, you and your family jump in the helicopter. And you go up and look at, and you see all of Portland. And they hover right over the parade and, oh, Wilsonville High School Band, Pastor Brett, uh, Tualatin High School. Look at, there's a, it's the whole parade from beginning to end. And you can look at any section at any time that you want. That's sort of, if you would, we've got to step away from the linear part of this life and realize that God sees the whole thing, beginning to end. He knows the beginning from the end. That's why the Bible can do stuff like prophecy, with 100% accuracy. Um, no other book does that. No other religion does that. Um, it's interesting because Muhammad, you know, he made a, a prophetic statement that he would return to Jerusalem. He never did. Man, you should quit being a Muslim just because of that. He was a liar and he, and he didn't do what he said he was going to do. Jesus has done everything that he said he would do. And, and, and man, most of Bible prophecy has been fulfilled perfectly. The only things that have yet to be fulfilled are going to happen in our future still. And it's exciting at that. We've been talking a lot about that lately. Man, I should do a prophecy update again. I got a lot to talk about. Um, um, was I right? I mean, Iran and Russia and not like that. We, Russia yesterday went to Damascus, uh, did a sneak trip down to Damascus. And he's down there talking to Turkey and Iran and they're doing their thing. Um, it, it, it's amazing how, how things are shaping up, even from, from New Year's Eve and what we were talking about there, just watching the events uh, unfold. But I got to resist the temptation to dive into all that stuff. But God knows the beginning from the ending. He knows that's why the Bible tells us what's going to happen. I love it. It's not just the stuff that's future events for us, but, you know, like the name Cyrus. God told the Jews that a guy named Cyrus would come hundreds of years later, and Cyrus came. And, uh, you, know, was, and, and you know, like everything that happened, even in secular events, God said, yeah, I know all that's going to happen. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. And so that's one of the things about God. Now, by the way, there are some people out there, pastors and churches uh, that you probably know and love, that are adopting sort of a new kind of thinking. Um, it, it's really not new. There's nothing new under the sun. That's true what, uh, what Solomon said about that. But, uh, but this new theology you need to watch out for, and it's basically saying that God... Um, has no idea what the future is going to be, that it's still unwritten, and that God doesn't know the future. Have you, has anybody heard that one uh, from, yeah, it's, it's floating around, and there's Greg Boyd and some books that he has written about this stuff. Watch out. It's diminishing God and his power and his authority, and God knows the beginning from the end. He knows the future, and anybody who says God doesn't, they're diminishing God, and they're going to have a lot to answer for when they stand before God, who knows what's going to happen when they stand before them. He already knows the future. Uh, watch out for that teaching. It's, I think it's a dangerous and wrong teaching. By the way, anytime you minimize or, or um, restrict God, or anytime you minimize Jesus, 
really red flags should go up. Some of the more subtle false teaching out there, it, it always tends to minimize God and minimize what he's doing and, and Jesus and the work of, of Christ. Watch out, just giving you a friendly warning about that. Well, um, this verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, is one that causes many's brain to short circuit because it's, it deals with time and space. And I believe God exists outside of that. And it answers all kinds of questions. Um, and it raises questions. Um, like, for example, if God exists outside of time, what happens when you die? To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So when you die, we picture in time, linear, we're very linear. So we picture, well, my grandma died. She's been up there waiting for me for years. And when I die, I'm going to hug grandma and she's going to go, finally, you're in heaven. I've been up here forever and waiting for you. That's the way we view it. Could it be that as soon as you die, bing, you're in heaven. And guess what? We're all going to be there. And we're all going to, wow, we're in heaven. And you're like, wow, what happened? Did a nuclear bomb go off? We all die at the same time? No, I believe we're going to be with God. And when we see him, we will be like him, the Bible says. Could it be that we now exist outside of time when you die and go to heaven? So nobody's up in heaven waiting for stuff to happen. Nobody, in, that's, you're thinking linearly. Maybe when you get to heaven, we're all going to be there all at the same time, clumsy word, and just worshiping before God, standing before his throne, enjoying what God has prepared for us in the eternal condition. Uh, time out the window, eternity before us. Like we have to kind of broaden our thinking on that. So nobody, I, I don't believe anybody's waiting in heaven. Right now you're in heaven with your grandma. And that explains to me, by the way, how when you're in heaven, the Lord's going to wipe away all the tears. There'll be no more crying, no more sadness, no more sorrow, because everything's going to work out and you're going to be there with them. Does that make sense? I told you it makes your brain start to short circuit a little bit, but that's what I, I think the, the Bible hints at. Verse 16. Now it gets uh, back to depression. <sighs> Verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. And I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for, there for every purpose and for every work. See, he's, he's, he's back to, there's a time for everything, but God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. Question, does God judge the righteous with the wicked? No. We, we looked at these two verses on Sunday and talked talked, I went down a kind of a rabbit's trail on uh, ju ju God judging the righteous with the wicked. And we talked about the rapture of the church and how I believe God's going to pull his people out before the wrath of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. He does not judge the righteous with the wicked. Solomon's wrong. Verse 18, and I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Every one that thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. Um, question. Does man have preeminence over a beast? The answer is yes. Now, if you're an extreme environmentalist, there's a view out there that says no. Um, I've actually, in fact, we as a group have talked to envir radical environmentalists. I had a family camp once we were on the beach and this, this, uh, we were talking about this little snowy plover bird that was endangered. And, and this, this, this person, uh, I asked, do you think that snowy plover is more important than that child over there? And it was one of our kids who's now married. Uh, at the time, he was like four. Um, but now he's married and he's a full-grown adult. Um, that's how long ago this was. <laughs> um, but we asked, is, uh, uh, because they almost ran over our child with their quad as they were these, these uh, government officials on the environment tearing up the beach on their quads, <laughs> um, uh, came zipping by and saying, you leaned your bag up against the post that says, watch out for the snowy plover. And they were furious. And, and then they zipped off and almost ran over the child. So I was like, man, are you kidding? Do you care more about this, this bird than you do about that child that you almost ran over? And the person said, I care more about the bird than I do about people. And that's when my wife almost punched the person. Um, <laughs> and we had to pull her off of that. Uh, <laughs> one of my pastors had to pull her off. And I was like, okay, honey, thank you. <laughs> Debbie's over there swinging. And I, 
I calmed everything down. Uh, but but it, it kind of blew us all away because that was that, that you know, that worldview uh, that, that, you know, and, and you see that. There's more concern about saving the whales than there are about saving the unborn baby. Um, there's, there's a worldview that says animals are more important than people. And there's even an extreme view that says we need to kill people because, because there's too many people on the earth and the population is hurting the earth. And it, it gets weird. Solomon's so depressed. Yeah, we're, we're just like the beast. There's no difference between an animal and a person. And by the way, they're teaching that in high school today to our children. Uh, our kids, high school, junior high, there's no difference between an animal and you. And that's why we say kids are just going to have sex. And we're, you know, it's like we, we don't put humanity in a different, a different behavior level than animals. The Bible doesn't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Solomon, he's talking about under the sun, secular, apart from God. He says, it seems like there's no difference between a dog that dies out in the woods and you that die in, and have a funeral. No different. We know from other biblical passages, Solomon's wrong on this as well. But Brett, you can't say Solomon's wrong. This is the Bible. That's why you have to understand Ecclesiastes. The point is he's wrong. That's the whole point. And then he'll even say it at the end. Okay, are you still with me on this? I have to say this over and over again because people abuse the book of Ecclesiastes. Your secular atheist friends will come and say, well, Solomon said this, and it's contradictory to the Bible, the rest of the Bible. And they think they've got you. You have to understand the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. And by, by the way, Job is also a book like that. Job and his friends and their discussion, most of what they said was unfounded and wrong. And the Lord came out and said that in chapter 38 of Job. He says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Everything you said is a waste of time. So watch out for that technique of the, you know, the Bible critic uh, saying it's full of contradictions. They'll use Ecclesiastes and Job for that. Just a reminder. Well, he's basically saying, you know, there's no man, man hath no preeminence above the beast for all his vanity. Verse 20, all go into one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward into the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Man, he's basically saying, you know, live like a hog, die like a dog. That's what he's saying. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's his worldview under the sun. Quickly, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, So I returned. It's going to get more depressing, by the way. (laughs) Verse 1. So, so I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he both they that hath not been who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Do you ever feel like that when you see evil on the earth? Like, oh man. I, I hear from time to time parents, young, young, young couples, I should say, who are hesitant to be parents because of the world we live in. And one of the things I have to say about that is, yeah, things are bad in the world, but there's been bad times throughout all of history. I mean, can you imagine being born you know, in Europe in World War I or during the Holocaust, being born during that time. I mean, you know, and, 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 um, and there's this kind of tendency to say, man, we don't want to bring a child into this world because it's so horrible. But, um, but that's not the biblical mindset. The Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. Children are a heritage of the Lord. They're a gift from God. And every parent that's ever done that uh, had children, they realize, oh yeah, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And it's the best thing that, you know, having children is a beautiful thing. But don't get into that place like Solomon thinking, man, there's so much evil in the world and darkness that, man, we're not even going to have children. Because that's kind of what he implies here. He's saying it's better to not have been born than to be alive and see the oppression and the evil that's going on in the world. Not really true. Um, Remember I was talking about how every complaint Solomon has, there's an answer. Let me give you one example of that, where in verse 1 he says two times, there's no comforter, 
There's no comforter. You know, there's people being oppressed, tears, no comforter. But would you keep your finger here and go with me to John's gospel, chapter 14, John 14. And I love this because the disciples, when they heard that Jesus was about to depart from them, that was kind of bad news for them. (laughs) What are you going to do with Jesus departing only three years into the ministry? What are we going to do if Jesus is gone? He's going to be crucified. But Jesus wants to give them a good word and check out what he says. It's John chapter 14, verse 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And, um, you, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's, he said, I'm getting ready to go. Don't let your heart be troubled. And that, that first sentence doesn't just include, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, that, that classic statement Jesus made about salvation. But later on in the chapter, he, he continues why their hearts should not be troubled. Look at verse 15. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And he says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, capital C, that he may abide with you forever. How long will the comforter abide with you? Forever. Even the Spirit, capital S, of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. That's the secular person. The under the sun person will not know the Holy Spirit. Man, I had a great... Deb and I had a great dinner with a couple in the church here, and it was really interesting because she was telling us a little bit about her story, and it's amazing. She, on, for all appearances, looked like a Christian. People thought she was a Christian, but she says that she knows she wasn't a Christian. And that's a funny thing. I, I think that happens more often than we'd like to think or admit. But the thing that when she really knew that she was saved is when the Holy Spirit came upon her life. That's when she knew that she actually really was saved and as a Christian. And I believe there's real truth to that. Remember the three relationships we have with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit was with you, he will be in you, and he shall be upon you. Those are the three prepositions that are hugely important when you talk about the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, that's when the Holy Spirit comes in you. And that's where you find him to be the comforter. And what does he do? Let's read on. Um, By the way, uh, Jesus goes on. Look at verse uh, 25 of chapter 14 of John. He says, these things have I spoken to do being yet present with you. He said, I'm with you now. But, verse 26, the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever things I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world giveth, give I to you. Not, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why should the, the disciples, why should we not let our hearts be troubled? It's because the Lord Jesus left for us and for his church the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, And what will the Holy Spirit do? Give you a peace that passes understanding. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things, bring everything to your remembrance into your mind, what the Lord has said to us, and give us that peace. And so we don't have to let our hearts be troubled. Solomon, being disconnected from God, said there's no comforter. But when you are connected to God the Father, then you are connected to God the Son. And that's where the Holy Spirit brings us great comfort. Are you you seeing what Solomon's so lacking? I hope you're not lacking that. I hope you have the comforter that the Holy Spirit is in you, and I hope you're saved because that's where that comes from. Well, um, so chapter 4, verse 1, he says, no comforter. We know that Jesus said there is a comforter. Verse 4, again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor, for, you know, for the works, the right works. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full of travail and vexation of spirit. Um, That that phrase, eats his own flesh, it sounds a little horrible, but probably better translated, he's ruining himself, you know, or he's starving himself is is kind of the idea. He's he's, he's not, so so he's basically saying you can work uh, and travail and work and try to survive and you're still going to die or you can just sit around and do nothing in quietness. Either way, it's all vanity. That's, that's what he's saying. Verse 7. 
And then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. He's saying that he's alone. That there's, you know, have you ever wondered, um, have you noticed how sometimes the most famous people, uh, the richest of people, there tends to be a loneliness that can oftentimes be like, oh, but Brett, those people are in front of millions of people, the, the movie stars, the musicians, and, you know, all these people have fans. But I think, from what I can tell, there's a real loneliness in fame. And from what I can see in the world, that's why you see the wealthiest and the famous, they're depressed and they're often alone. You know, and they've given themselves to their work and while they may have a thousand fans, they don't have a wife or a husband that stayed with them. They have the fancy home, but it's empty. There's, you know, the, the empty giant mansion that they have in Hollywood is pretty depressing when they're there just sitting there by themselves. And so you see the suicidal tendencies of famous people. You see how they drown their sorrows with drugs and alcohol. You see how they're miserable, even though they're wealthy. And you, you kind of get the sense Solomon is that way. And he finds that he's alone, um, which is amazing. Brett, he's got 700 wives, 300 concubines. Yeah, but he seems alone. Just because he's got those, those women in his life doesn't necessarily mean that he's He's got a friend that is really there in the way God would want him to be. And then he's, he's saying, so I'm alone. He, and then he kind of ponders the idea of two people together. Um, he says in verse 9, two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together... Then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. Hmm. Now, some of you are saying, hey, Brett, you pastors use this during weddings. You talk about this and how the, the twofold cord and threefold cord is not easily broken. And you say, that's Jesus and all that. I didn't know it came from miserable Solomon and his disconnect from God. Um, yep, that's where it comes from. Solomon is saying two are better than one. And, and the implication, he's by himself. Even though he, he has, you know, all this wealth and all these women and all this stuff, he's, he's feeling alone. And that's where, you know, separation from God brings discontentment with life. And that's every part of life, the relationships that we have, the stuff that we get tangled up with. It's empty, 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 empty. And people strive to get that stuff. Solomon says, I've had it all, but it's all vanity under the sun. And so he's, he's, it's almost like he's longing, oh, two are better than one. And he makes some good points. Now, see, the reason that we, um, again, look at this and use it in weddings and talk about marriage in the context of a threefold cord, it's because we know that's what Solomon's saying. It's like in chapter three, same thing. He was saying stuff under the sun, S-U-N. It's just vanity. But this idea that he's talking about under the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, it's not vanity at all, but it's absolute truth. Two are better than one. And Jesus is the one that's the third fold cord that makes it even more powerful. How do we know that, Brett? Well, that's what the Bible talks about. You know, two people being joined together in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul the apostle said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and they too shall become one flesh. And then he says, and this is a great mystery. Word mystery is mysterion in the Greek, which is not just unsolved. The idea is he's about to reveal what the mystery is. So he says, this is a great mystery. And everybody went, what's he going to say? He says, two joined together to become one, but this is a great mystery. And I speak, here it is, concerning Jesus Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You see, the mystery of marriage is solved in Jesus Christ. So whether Solomon knew what he was talking about or not, 
this makes the perfect example and illustration because under the sun, S-U-N, yeah, it's all vanity. But under the sun, S-O-N, your marriage, the two of you being joined together to become one, well, it's actually the best thing yet. In Bible times, they would take two pieces of hemp and they would wind them together and make a piece of twine. But under stress, those two pieces of twine would start to fray and even break. So when they wanted to make a strong rope, they would take those two pieces of twine and instead of just wrapping them together, they would take a, a third fold cord. That's what Solomon's referring to here, a third fold cord, the third one. And they would take that third cord and they'd wrap the two around that center cord. So when the rope was under strain and stress, those two outer cords would get tighter around the inner cord and under strain, the rope actually physically become stronger under stress, under strain, as the ropes wrap tightly around the inner core. I wonder if, you know, the Lord put this in Solomon's mind to write it down. And so it's all vanity, all that. But little did he know, he was kind of prophetically speaking of something that the New Testament would say, yep, that's absolutely true. Under the sun, S-O-N, man. He makes all things beautiful in his time. Under the sun, S-O-N, he makes two people, and, and then that third-fold cord makes something that's not easily broken. If you want a marriage that's lasting, make sure that you put Christ at the center. He's, the, he's that third-fold cord that needs, you need to wrap yourselves as a husband and wife around Jesus Christ, and therein you find a strong, lasting rope that's unbreakable. Too many couples try to depend on their own strengths and powers to stay married. That's why more than half of people divorce. But if you put Christ at the center, you're going to have that third-fold cord, and that's not quickly broken. Huge, important. But all that to say, Solomon, he's he's dabbling with truth, but he doesn't get it because he's looking at it from the perspective of just under the sun, S-U-N. And so he's pretty depressed. Check this out, verse uh, 13. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. In other words, it can't be even... He's basically saying, I'm a sorry old king. I wished I was a, a poor little child that had a wisdom than an than a, a old, rich king that's just miserable. Verse 15, I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and vexation of the spirit. He's saying, I'm going to have kids and they're going to walk after me and that's going to be a van- that's going to be vanity. And everything that before me was vanity and everything after me is vanity. Again, Solomon's sitting there in his depression Wowsy, wowsy, woo-woo. Woe is me. Under the sun, everything's horrible. But he's missing it. Now, again, Solomon will tell us what to do about this at the end, but we've still got a lot of work to do because there's 12 chapters in this story. Uh, congratulations. We gotta, we'll, we'll try to pick up the speed, though, next week uh, as we read this under the sun uh, pining of Solomon. Well, Lord, we are thankful for your word. And, and Solomon's misery points us to the Son, your Son, Jesus, who makes all things beautiful in his time, who, Lord, gives us kids and children to enjoy and to be blessed by. You're the one who makes marriage legitimate by putting your Son in the middle. And you're the one that makes the work of our hands and the labor that we do worthwhile. Lord, Solomon just seemed so down and out looking at things apart from you. And I pray that this would be a good reminder for us not to just go through life with a secular worldview, with a fatalist mentality and thinking that it all is just going to work out however it's going to work out. But Lord, you tell us to be busy about your work. You tell us to have hope for greater things. You tell us, Lord, that all things are working together for good. Even the stuff that seems to be bad, Lord, you tell us that it's going to work out. And so we put our hope in you. We put our trust in you. We don't put our trust in ourselves, our abilities, our our understanding, and our, our knowledge. We put our trust, Lord, in you and you alone. 
for you're worthy to receive all glory and honor. Solomon knew you were to be feared, but we also know, Lord, that you are to be loved and that your love for us is profound. So we bask in your love. We thank you for your kindness, your mercy that's new every morning. We thank you for your love and your compassion toward us. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the one who does all these things. So bless these people tonight who've taken time to to study the scriptures. Lord, may it bring good fruit in all of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.